The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Amen. Why don't you take your Bibles with me and turn to John chapter 20. If you need a Bible, you can find one in your pews. And if you need help finding the place, uh, you can tap somebody next to you and we'll help you out. We're in John chapter 20 today and uh, we'll start at the first verse. John chapter 20, starting at verse 1. Why don't you follow with me as I read John chapter 20, starting at verse 1. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. And Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is authoritative. Your word is necessary for our lives. Your word is sufficient. And uh, Father, we uh, pray that you would use this word in our lives, uh, that you would speak to us through your truth, uh, that you would help us to not only to, to listen, uh, but Father, that our, our hearts would be inclined to follow after you. Uh, Father, help us to be convicted, to be challenged, and uh, to submit to the authority of your word. Help us to be comforted by your truth. Uh, Father, we're so grateful uh, for all that you've revealed uh, to us, uh, something that is trustworthy, reliable, and uh, that gives hope for our lives. Uh, so, Father, today I pray that you'd use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was the, the French reformer, John Calvin, who noted that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important article of faith, and without it, the hope of eternal life is extinguished. But then he goes on to say this, It may be thought strange, however, that John does not produce more capable witnesses. Uh, the woman who showed up at the tomb only came there to mourn his death. The disciples, who should have been the first witnesses of the risen Messiah, were all behind closed doors, fearing for their lives. And Peter, the leader of the group, uh, had already denied that he even knew the Lord. I mean, is there anyone better to show up here to give testimony to, to Jesus Christ and his resurrection? None of them believed that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. And it's really a sad commentary on these disciples because Jesus repeatedly told him that he would rise from the dead. And the specific day that he would rise. In John chapter 2 and verse 19, Jesus answered them and said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And verse 21 lets us know that he was speaking of the temple of his body, speaking about himself coming back from the dead. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40, it says, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the, the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This was not a surprise. And even more explicitly, three times in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus gives his disciples advance warning about his death and resurrection. 
Listen to this, Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Mark chapter 9, verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Mark chapter 10, verse 34. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. I mean, third time's a charm, right? I mean, just over and over and over again, he's telling them, this is what's going to happen to me. You shouldn't be surprised. You shouldn't be shocked. Can you be any more direct than that? But it seems like the only people who took Jesus seriously, who took Jesus at his word, were the enemies of Christ. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 62, it says, Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the scribes, the Pharisees, gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver, after three days, said, After three days, I'm to rise again. I mean, the only people that are remembering what Jesus said are the enemies who want to make sure they shut it down. The only people anticipating the third day are the enemies of Christ. His followers are all preparing for the memorial service, you know, dropping off their flowers and the, the spices. That's essentially what's happening in chapter 20 as it opens up. Just as the, the darkness of early morning transitioned into the full light, the understanding of the disciples went from darkness, the darkness of confusion, to the full light of faith. After darkness, there was light, and the brightness of Easter morning finally dawned on them. But as we open up chapter 20, we find a very sad scene. Look again at verse 1. It says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. Why is she there at the tomb? When we compare this to the other gospel accounts, we discover that Mary Magdalene was not alone. She arrived with a number of other ladies who supported Jesus during his earthly ministry. Mark records that uh, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, and uh, Luke notes that uh, Joanna was there as well. A number of ladies were here. John focuses particularly on Mary Magdalene because she had a prominent role in this account. But they, they all gathered together to memorialize Christ, basically to come and say their last goodbyes. Mary Magdalene was the same Mary from whom the Lord cast out seven demons, according to Luke 8. One reference uh, makes this observation that Magdala, where Mary was from, was a wealthy city of shameful reputation and destroyed for harlotry, May we not recognize that it would be the very spirit of Jesus to take the despised but repentant woman who had fallen to a life so low and raise her to the heights sublime, to a life of purity and holy devotion to him. It would be a signal triumph of the gospel to cast out the demons from one who had prostituted her beauty and wealth of natural talents to a life of disgrace and shame and plant within her the enthusiasm and devotion for a holy life of service and sacrifice such as that which we see in Mary Magdalene. She was forgiven much, so she loved much. And Mary was there on the night of the crucifixion to see where they put Jesus to rest. She watched Joseph of Arimathea wrap the body of Jesus in a clean linen shroud and lay it in a new tomb. And Mary Magdalene was there to, to watch it all take place, sitting opposite of the tomb. Matthew chapter 27 lets us know about that. Uh, this wrapping of the body was a sign of love and affection uh, for those that had deceased. They were covered in paste and spices and you know, the, the kind of between the layers of the sheets, they'd, they'd apply this, this kind of thick paste and spice between the bandages, almost like kind of wrapping a person up in a cocoon around the body. 
Their mouth was held shut by a bandage and a cap was put on the head. And this is what Nicodemus did according to, to John chapter 19. And Mary and the other women who supported Jesus were watching on. They were unable to perform the service themselves because there wasn't enough time. They, they weren't able to give their personal touches to say goodbye to Jesus Christ. So Mary and the other ladies prepared their own spices and perfumes and add their own honor to Jesus Christ. They wanted to add their own flowers to the casket. Luke chapter 23 and verse 56 says, Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. They couldn't come back immediately uh, because the Sabbath had already begun. And uh, they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment of the law. So Sunday morning was the earliest that they could get back to the tomb. And on that first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. And if you remember, the ladies were having a conversation on their way to the tomb. They were saying to one another, who's going to move the stone? How, how are we going to get into the, the tomb to actually apply these spices to Jesus Christ? Gravestones were, were massive objects, massive circular discs made out of limestone. And according to one resource, they, they weighed between one and two tons. The average car weighs about one and a half tons. So just imagine the weight of a car in a solid rock. I mean, no wonder they're wondering, who's going to move this for us? How are we ever going to get into this tomb? But lo and behold, when they arrive, Mary notices that the stone has already been removed. While it was still dark, they saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. She notices the stone was already taken away, and she just bolts. She runs in the other direction. Like, I've immediately got to go and share this with the disciples. Like, what has happened? Matthew, Mark, and Luke let us know that the other ladies went to examine the tomb, and they were greeted by an angel, but Mary doesn't wait around for that. She just bolts in the other direction. She sees the stone rolled away. She immediately reasons that the body's missing. Somebody's taken the body. She's not thinking about who would have sufficient motives to, to remove the stone her immediate conclusion is the body must be stolen. She rushes off to inform Peter and the disciples, and she is in a panic. Verse 2 says, So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. You know, Mary is reporting her crime scene here. They've taken away the Lord. Who is they? I don't know who they are. Where have they gone? I don't know where they've gone. You know, do, do you know that the body's been taken? I don't know, but I mean, I mean, obviously it must have been taken. I mean, she knows, Mary, are you okay? She's just frantic. It, it's gone. They've taken them. Who, who's they? Like, she doesn't know. She's just running to report what she's imagining must have happened. Think about this. The empty tomb by itself was not enough to turn Mary from darkness to light. She's still in the dark. She, she still hasn't been brought out into the light. It has not dawned on her, her yet what has actually happened. Even though the empty tomb supports the resurrection of Christ, she's not stopping to think, well, the Roman soldiers wouldn't have done this, and you know, the, the enemies of Christ wouldn't have done this, and you know, the disciples didn't do this. She's not thinking of any of that. She, she's just frantic. She, she's lost in her own thoughts. She's just confused. And how many times have, have you been there? You know, because of the circumstances of life that, that you struggle to remember the promises of God, that, that you're not thinking clearly about, well, what has the Lord said about the events that I'm experiencing right now? Just, just frantic all over the place. 
The promises of God might seem distant, but the, the word of God is what brings us comfort. It's what brings us hope. If we recall his words back to mind, let, let me remind myself of what the Lord has said. That's going to give you stability in the time of a storm. That's what we need to turn back to. But here, the lights are still dim for Mary. But not only is there the empty tomb, there's also the linen wrappings. And that's the, the second point here. It goes from the empty tomb to the linen wrappings in verses 3 to 10. Look at verse 3 with me. It says, So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there in the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had, come, who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. The linen wrappings here are mentioned three different times in this section. That's the, the focus of this section. And according to verse 8, it was after seeing these linen wrappings that one of the two disciples believed. And again, in this section, the, the light is still dim, but the, the rays of light are starting to break through the darkness at this point. And this is presented to us in almost a, a humorous fashion after hearing the testimony of Mary and the other women. According to the other gospel records, the other women came as well. Peter and the other disciple went forth. And who is the other disciple in this passage? It's the Apostle John. He never mentions himself by name in the Gospel of John. He refers to himself as the other disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. And for John, that was the most important thing about him, that Jesus loves me. You know, this I know, right? <laughs> Jesus loves me. That's the most important thing about me. So why call yourself John when you can call yourself the disciple that Jesus loved? And many see this as just a sign of humility, that he doesn't, he doesn't refer to himself. He doesn't need to mention his name. So why does this humble disciple have to inform us that the two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter did and made it to the tomb first? You know, it doesn't seem so humble to, to say, hey, I, I beat Peter. The old man, Peter, he couldn't catch up with me. But uh, I think there's, there's more to it than that. We have this detail, first of all, because it's a first-hand eyewitness account. It really happened, okay? So he shares the details around the event. But I also believe that this is a mark of humility rather than pride. Why do I say that? I say that because even though John arrived to the tomb first, guess who entered the tomb first? Peter. So John is on the outside. He gets to the tomb first, but he can't bring himself to actually go into the tomb. And Peter, bold and courageous, doesn't hesitate for a moment. He just barges right inside the tomb. You know, what's a tomb to me? And then when they entered in, they saw these linen wrappings, and John stoops down to look into the tomb. Peter goes in to examine the wrappings and the face cloth, and the word used for Peter's look is to gaze, to observe. He's, he's examining these things. And he recognizes that this is not the work of a grave robber. I mean, the, the most valuable item inside the tomb would have been the linen cloth and the spices. I mean, there's about 100 pounds worth of spices in here, according to John chapter 19. You know, mixture of myrrhs and aloes, about 100 pounds weight that was brought to Jesus. So who would take the body and leave the valuables? You know, if you're going to go rob a grave, you know, you don't take the body and leave the gold and, you know, 
rings and whatever else, you know, on the, you know, inside the, the, the casket. It's like, you know, you take the valuables and you leave the body. But here's like the very opposite has happened. They left the valuables and, and the body's gone. So, so he, he understands this is not the, the work of a, of a grave robber. And the other thing is who does the laundry before they leave the scene of a crime? You know, who folds it up to make sure that everything's in place? I mean, nobody does that. In verse 7, it says, The faith cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. How, how could the linens be left there undisturbed, rolled up in place, if there was a robbery that just took place? I mean, if you've you know, ever had a house broken into or you've seen somebody whose house was broken into, it's just like a mess. They're looking for everything. And actually, what we have here is contrasted with what we learned earlier in John, because there was another person who came out of a grave. Back in John 11, there was a resurrection. You know, we could call it a resuscitation because Lazarus had to die again. But back in John 11, in verse 43, Jesus was at another tomb, and after they removed the stone, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! And the man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Loose him and let him go. And those who were around the tomb had to help Lazarus get undone from the wrappings that were around his body. He's just kind of hobbling out of the tomb. Like, I I need help. I can't do this by myself. I'm all wrapped up here. It's like I'm in a straitjacket. Somebody help me. Like, unbuckle me. But what happened here? The wrappings are still there and the body's missing? Jesus doesn't need somebody to loose him and let him go. (laughs) He simply passed through the wrappings in the same way that he traveled through the doors that were shut. Later on in in John chapter 20 and verse 19, it says that when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. You know, it's like you have to say, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, here, I'm here about peace, you know. Like somebody's just showed up through your door without you even opening it. You know, here I am, peace, peace, you know, I'm not here to destroy you. Peace be with you. Jesus was able to go through shut doors after the resurrection. So when we think about the, the stone rolled away from the tomb, it wasn't so that Jesus could get out. It was so that the people could get in. And it was after seeing the face cloth rolled up in place and the linen wrappings lying there in place that John came to believe. And really quick, I want to add that there is no mention of the imprint of Jesus' face on the face cloth. I'm not sure if you've uh, ever heard about the Shroud of Turin. And uh, just want to add that there is no imprint that the Scripture speaks about, imprint of his body, imprint of his face on a cloth, uh, which some claim that, you know, they have a cloth that has the the face of Jesus on it today. Uh, The best testing has shown that You know, this cloth is actually from the 14th century, not the 1st century. And John Calvin wrote about the same cloth in his time. And listen to what he says. He says, How is it possible that those sacred historians who carefully related all the miracles that took place at Christ's death should have omitted to mention one so remarkable as the likeness of the body of our Lord remaining on the wrapping sheet? You know, if, if that was such a big deal, why didn't they mention anything about the body of Jesus being imprinted on the sheet? He says, I appeal to you, if such a miracle had been wrought, would nothing have been said about it by the evangelist? 
who was so careful to relate events which were not of so great importance, like who came to the tomb first? Let us be satisfied with this simple view of the matter that Christ, by laying aside the tokens of death, intended to testify that he had clothed himself with the blessed and immortal life. And then he also added this. He says, I will say nothing about their impudence in boasting that they have this very napkin in five or six different places. You know, they're, they're like, you know, multiple, you know, uh, uh, volunteers that said, hey, this is a napkin, this is a napkin, I've got the napkin over here. It's like, how do we have five or six different napkins and there's only one face of Jesus? So, so uh, even during his time, the relics were everywhere. The church was claiming to have something of historic value, but what's remarkable about the face cloth is not the face that was in it, but the face that wasn't in it. That's what's remarkable about the face cloth. And John, by seeing it rolled up, believed. Wasn't yet the full light of Revelation, verse 9 says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again, but it was still a true belief, even though they were perplexed. So verse 10 says, the disciples went away again to their own homes. Luke 24 and verse 12 says, Peter went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. So the dawn was starting to appear, but John, the beloved disciple, believes. Peter marveled, but Mary is still weeping. And it's not a a quiet, restrained shedding of tears, but this is a loud, noisy wailing and lamentation. Mary is still weeping, weeping uncontrollably. If you look again at chapter 20, it says in verse 11, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. It's a loud cry. It's the same word that was used for uh, the, the, the moaning outside of Lazarus' tomb. This is what she's weeping about. She's weeping about Jesus not being there, the body not being there, weeping uncontrollably. We can't find him. Somebody's taking him away. A Lutheran commentator, Lenski, says, uh, Indeed, why does she weep when we w- should have had cause to weep to all eternity if what she wept for had been given to her? the dead body of our Lord. <laughs> if, if Jesus was there after the third day, then you should be crying uncontrollably because our, our sins are not forgiven. His payment was not sufficient. We're still in our sins. That's when you should weep uncontrollably. But here she's weeping because she can't find the dead body. When she looks in the tomb, there's more than a face cloth. There's also these uh, linen wrappings, but there's, there's something else. Look at verse Verse 11, it says, But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stopped, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. These are the angelic visitors, the angelic visitors. I remember uh, my professor, uh, one of my professors uh, in seminary, he said he was, he was preaching at a predominantly black church. And uh, when he came to this verse, when it says, you know, and he saw two angels in, in white, he kind of misread it. And he says, and he saw two white men sitting, one at the head and one at the feet. And somebody says, hold on, preacher. That's, that's, I don't think that's what it says. <laughs> I don't think that's what it says. There's two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the, the foot. The tombs in ancient Israel were basically uh, holes chiseled out of a rock or in the side of a hill, and it was hollowed out so that you could walk into it, create a shelf to place a body on. And as Mary stoops to look inside the tomb, she sees these two visitors, one at the head and one at the feet. 
of where the body was, and they're identified as angels. And we know from the other gospel accounts that, that these ladies who visited the tomb also saw two angels. But Mary apparently wasn't with them and didn't get the message that Jesus was alive, so she's still in a state of confusion. And it's difficult to put all the accounts together because people are running here, there, everywhere. But you need to keep in mind that all this is happening in real time. People are panicking over what they're seeing. And there's no indication that she even recognizes these two visitors as being angels. As as far as she's concerned, these are just two men sitting in white. And I love the way that the angels interact with the the disciples because they always seem so confused about, like, what, what, what what, what are you crying about? Like, what's going on? It's like they don't understand it. Verse 13, they they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? (laughs) It reminds me of how the angels responded over in uh, Luke 24. In Luke 24 and verse 4 to 7, it says, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? I mean, why are you even here? Why why are you looking for Jesus? I mean, he's, he's alive. You don't know that? What, what are you doing here? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was in Galilee? Like, you didn't believe him? He, he said he was going to rise again. You didn't believe his words? Son of man was going to be delivered into the hands of sinful men, crucified and raised on the third day. But she responds here, not even taking into account, like, hey, like, they weren't here before, and now they are. Like, that's kind of remarkable. You know, they just appeared out of nowhere. But she doesn't even take that into account. What does she say? She goes right back to the same thing that she's been telling everybody else. Why, why am I weeping? She said to them, because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. They who? I don't know. They've took him. They just took him. Somebody came and took him. And you can just imagine the angels looking at one another like, do you get this? I mean, I don't, like, what's wrong with these people? What is wrong with you people? You know? She's still at the crime scene looking for evidence. But at this point, not even the angels were enough for Mary to see the light. You know, these visitors that pop up out of nowhere, that's not enough. And you might, might have thought she would say, hold on a minute. They, you know, before they weren't and now they are, but she doesn't think about any of that. Still hasn't seen the break of dawn yet. Empty tomb, linen wrappings, two angelic visitors, and she's still in the dark. But finally, there's the risen Christ. Look at verse 14. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. (laughs) Finally, Jesus shows up. But even here for a brief moment, he withholds his identity from her because she sees him but doesn't know who it is. She turned around, saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. And it's not necessary to imagine, you know, that Jesus changed his appearance, you know, kind of put on a mask. But in the same way that the disciples on the road to Emmaus, their eyes were prevented from recognizing him, in the same way, Mary is prevented from recognizing him. And it's not that Jesus is out of focus, it's that we are, right? We need to be given the eyes to see. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And he's asking her these leading questions to get her to the point. And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. Him who, you know, if you've taken him, tell me where you've laid him. You know, kind of like mid-thought, you know, doesn't even provide any context. If you've taken them, like, like, yeah. You know, ladies, help us out here a little bit, you know, kind of catch us mid-thought. <laughs> a little context here, a little context. 
So in this confused state, she thinks that the gardener would have an interest in a dead body. Like, seriously? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I, you know, I like to keep the fertilizer around, but dead bodies, you know, that's, that's really not my thing. She's grasping for anything right now. And isn't it gracious that God does not answer our prayers sometimes? You know, where, where's the dead body? I, I want the dead body. Isn't it gracious that God didn't provide a dead body? <laughs> Calvin again says, we see that Mary has no view of this matter, but what is earthly. She desires only to obtain the dead body of Christ, that she may keep it hidden in the sepulcher. But she leaves out the most important matter, the elevation of her mind to the divine power of resurrection. We need not wonder at such groveling views, uh, wonder if such groveling views place a veil before her eyes. You know, why didn't she recognize the risen Christ? Because she wasn't looking for the risen Christ. She's looking for the dead Christ. She couldn't see Jesus because she's looking for a dead Savior, not the risen Savior. And thank God he doesn't provide us with what we ask for. She's looking for a dead body. Thank God he doesn't provide us with that. And my question for you is, what, what dead bodies are you looking for? <laughs> old relationships, old friends, old jobs, old positions, old sins. Things that, you think, things that you think are good for you, but they're actually not. You know, looking for a dead body. Why, why do you need the dead body? That's not what you need. <laughs> Sometimes what we want is not what we need. Romans 8.26 says, In the same way the Spirit helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should. Mary didn't even know what to ask for here. The Spirit intercedes for us, even when we don't know what to ask for. Mary thought she wanted the dead body, but Jesus, Jesus gave her something that was far greater. He gave her the living Savior. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. And it's at this very moment that the lights come on. Finally. It's an illustration of what uh, John 10, 27 says. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. There's something familiar in the way that he said her name, Mary. And all of a sudden, the sun broke over the horizon. She was able to see him as clear as day. The master is speaking. Verse 16 says, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher, master. And she clung to him. But there's still more that she needs to understand. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. Some versions say, do not touch me. As if Jesus prevented her from, you know, even touching him. But the better rendering of Jesus' words are, stop clinging to me. He's not saying that he's untouchable. You know, later on in the same chapter, he would speak to Thomas in verse 27, he said to Thomas, reach, reach here with your finger and see my hands. And reach here your, your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. You can, you can touch me. Luke 24, 39, he says, see my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He wasn't untouchable. And the way that Jesus made the statement, it's structured in, in Greek in such a way that it indicates that he's stopping an action that's already going on. He's stopping an action that's already in progress. It could be translated, don't keep on trying to cling to me. It's in the process. Stop clinging to me. Stop hanging on to me. And there was a reason that Jesus told Mary to stop clinging to him. And part of it may have been that I'm not leaving yet. <laughs> when Jesus says, I've not yet ascended to the Father... He could be saying, I'm not leaving right away. I've not yet started my ascension. You know, stop, stop clinging to me now. I, I have not yet ascended to the Father, verse 17 says. 
The ascension was the moment when Jesus would be taken up from the earth to sit at the right hand of the Father, and it would be at least 40 days until that would happen. Acts chapter 1 and verse 3 says, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. So the the work of redemption was done, but the work of instruction was ongoing. Over 40 days, he's still instructing his disciples. You know, it's three and a half years, and they're still repeating the grade. So he still has to give them more instruction. And one of the things that he gave them instruction about was the kingdom of God. Still hadn't learned the lesson about the, the kingdom of God that's to come, and I think we're still trying to learn that lesson in the church today. So it'll be at least 40 days until he will be taken up into glory. But there was another reason that he told Mary about the ascension. He wanted Mary and the disciples to prepare themselves for a different kind of relationship with him. They're going to have to get ready to relate to Jesus differently than they used to. Jesus was not going to be physically and tangibly present. He's going to be taken away. And Mary Magdalene would have to let him go. The Apostle John wouldn't be able to lean on him anymore. You know, Peter wouldn't be able to to take him around in his boat anymore. Like, like there's going to be a different relationship. And this is what Jesus meant by, you know, a little while you will see me, and a little while you will see me no longer. He's actually told them earlier that it's to your advantage that I go away. I'll tell you the truth. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. I will send him to you. So, so why was it to their advantage that Jesus left? Number one, because when he left, he would send the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1 and verse 5 speaks about that. He would also have a ministry of preparation. In uh, John 14 and verse 2, it says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'd go to prepare a place for you. I'm going to make preparation for you. He left to have a ministry of reception to receive them to himself. If I go and prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself. It was a ministry of reception. I need to go so I can receive you. It was a ministry of intercession. That's why I left. Romans 8, 34 Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He had to leave to make intercession. And part of his leaving was also his glorification. He ascended to the right hand of the Father so that he would be exalted, so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Mary, don't keep hanging on to me. I've got work to do. (laughs) I've got to go, and it's to your advantage that I go. So stop clinging to me, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. And just real quick as a footnote, just to make a doctrinal point, when Jesus referred to his relationship with the Father, he was always careful to distinguish the relationship that I have and the relationship that you have. There's a difference here. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, go to my brethren and say to them, I'm ascending to our Father. That's not how Jesus speaks to his disciples. It's my Father and your Father, my God, your God, because the relationship that we have is a different, the relationship that we have with the Father is a different kind of relationship that Jesus has with the Father. And it's a way to distinguish himself. We're sons of God by creation and salvation. Because he's made us. He's created us. And he's my father because he's he saved me. He's brought me into his family. But that's not the relationship that he has with Jesus because he didn't create Jesus. Jesus relates to God by identification. He relates to the father uh, by eternal generation. He's the only begotten of the father. 
eternally the Son of God. Let that one sink in for a minute. You know, John 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He identifies himself with God. And he's the, the one of eternal generation, the only begotten. John 1.14, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There was something unique about Jesus' relationship. So he never spoke to the disciples and said, Our Father. He told them to say, Our Father. But he didn't join them and say, Our Father, as if the relationship was the same. But he's not ashamed to call us brethren. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. Hebrews 2.11 says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And you have to think about the significance of this, okay? These are the same disciples who are hiding away behind locked doors. These are the same disciples who've abandoned him at his lowest moment. These are the ones who are struggling to believe his word. These are some of the ones who've denied that they even know him. These are the ones who couldn't pray for one hour. These are the ones who, with curses and oaths, said, I do not know the man. And Jesus says, they might be ashamed of me, but I'm not ashamed of them. I'm not ashamed to call them brethren. And I have a personal message for them. I'm going to ascend to my Father, and I want you to be there with me when it happens. How, how gracious and compassionate is that of God? That even after you've stumbled and bumbled, totally blown it, he gives us the encouragement that I'm not ashamed to call you my brethren. And having heard the Lord's words, Mary became one of the first witnesses of the resurrection. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And Calvin said, it may be thought strange that John does not produce a more capable witness. Mary Magdalene, the, the announcer of the resurrection of Christ. But God is still doing the same today, isn't, it? isn't he? We have a strange bunch here announcing his resurrection, don't we? <laughs> 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame those which are strong. The base things of the world that despise God has chosen that the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. We are the, the not many, right? <laughs> Maybe you're thinking about today's message and wondering, how am I supposed to apply what I've just learned? You know, we've learned about people who were there at the tomb and saw the linen wrappings and had angelic visitors and Jesus Christ showed up to them himself. You know, how, how am I supposed to compete with this? How am I supposed to pick up where these disciples left off? How can I, how can I be the Lord's witness? In my day, you know, we, we sing that song, you know, were you there when they crucified the Lord? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? Were you there when he rose up from the dead? And the answer was, well, physically, no, I wasn't. I wasn't there. I, I, I didn't witness any of these things firsthand. How am I supposed to be God's witness when I don't have an eyewitness account of what actually happened? You know, I wasn't there to see the empty tomb. I, I, I didn't see the wrappings. I mean, John and Peter beat us to it. The shroud of turn isn't going to help. I wasn't there to witness the angelic visitors. Nobody appears unannounced to me. I haven't seen the risen Christ. The Apostle Paul actually said, I'm the last one who saw the resurrected Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 8. So what kind of encouragement am I supposed to get from, from this historic account? 
I don't have the same experience that they did. But there's one point that's found in the text, and we passed over it briefly, but it connects us to these first century disciples, and it's just as powerful today as it was back then. And what's that? It's the written word. (laughs) The written word. Look back at verses 8 and 9. It says, So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Why are Peter and John poking around a tomb to begin with? Why are they there? For, this is the explanation, why are they there? For as yet they did not understand the Scripture. They didn't need to be down in the tomb if they just took God at his word. You understand that? The, the reason that they're there looking at linen wrappings and, you know, going into a, a, a tomb is because they had not yet understood the Scriptures. I don't need to be down in the tomb poking around in the dark. I don't need to be picking up face cloths and body wrappings when I can pick up the Word of God and read what he said. Mark chapter eight thirty one. He already told them that I'm going to be killed and raised again in three days. Mark 9, 31, it said the same thing. Mark 10, 34, he said the same thing. That's all I need. I don't need to go into a tomb. <laughs> just, just tell me what the, the word of the Lord says. I, I'll believe that. I don't need to poke around in the, in the tombs to, to get the idea. Psalm 16, verse 10, said of the Christ, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That's enough for me. Isaiah 53, verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Jesus was going to die. The sacrifice was going to be offered. But then after this description of death in Isaiah chapter 53, it says, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After death, there will be life. Psalm 22 speaks about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in vivid detail. I mean, it it speaks about, I mean, read Psalm 22 and tell me that's not Jesus. Psalm 22, it speaks about the crucifixion in vivid detail. And then in verse 22, it says, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. The one who died would also proclaim the name of the Lord in the midst of his brethren. Who did Jesus say, go and tell that I'm ascending to the Father? He says, go and tell my brethren. Brethren, (laughs) he says, I'm going to proclaim to my brethren. After death, there's going to be life, and I'm going to proclaim this message. You don't have to go poking around in the tombs if you believe in the word of God. Our faith does not rely on probabilities. It doesn't rely on human reasoning. We don't have to sit here and figure out, you know, who moved the stone, and, you know, maybe I can reason that, you know, there's no other explanation, so it must have been a resurrection Why do we know it's a resurrection? Because God's word tells us it's a resurrection. That's how we know. Even the angels don't point to themselves as the basis for their faith. The angels don't say, you know, hey, you know, now I'm here, now I'm not, now I'm back, you know, isn't that enough? You know, supernatural, you know, believe in the resurrection. That's not what they do. They say, what are you even doing here? Didn't you believe the word that he said? He already said he was going to rise again. Like, what are you even doing here? Now, it's true that The evidence is there, and I don't want to cast that evidence aside, but the evidence is not the foundation for our belief. It's the Word of God that's the foundation for our belief, and because we believe in the Word of God, we expect to see the evidence. 
You understand? It's, 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 it's not, well, you know, if there's evidence, then I'll believe in the word of God. It's no, because I believe in the word of God, I expect to see the evidence. And we do. We see the evidence. The evidence is there. And that, that encourages our faith. But it's not, well, I'm not going to believe until I see the, the shroud or until I see the tomb or until I have an experience with the angels. I'm not going to believe. No, no, no. We believe in the word of God. And because we believe in the word of God, we expect the evidence to line up with that. The foundation of our belief is the word of God. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That's through the living and enduring word of God. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus told the parable of a rich man who ended up in hell. And he's thinking of a way to reach his brothers. And he thinks that the best way to convince them is through something sensational. You know, Abraham. Abraham, if somebody comes back from the dead, they'll repent. You got to give them a miracle, something Something that's just mind-blowing. Send somebody back from the dead, and then they'll believe. And what does Abraham say in verse 31, Luke 16, 31? He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, the word of God, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And Lazarus is walking around proving the point. Even though somebody was raised from the dead, they still don't believe. Actually, when they saw Lazarus raised from the dead, that is what made them want to kill Jesus. He's got too much proof out here. We've got to put him down. The word of God is enough. Moses and the prophets, let them read the word of God. That's enough. Moses and the prophets was a phrase they used to identify the word of God. The word is sufficient. And this is essentially what the angel said. Don't you believe his word? The word is sufficient. Why are you looking for the living one among the dead? You should have known this. What are you even doing here? Do you believe Jesus? Is his word enough? Does God's word provide comfort for you? Does it give you motivation? Does it, does it, does it bolden your trust? I, b- I believe God's word. We need to trust in the, the word of God. And just as God fulfilled this promise, he will fulfill every other promise. He's faithful to every promise of his word. And just like Mary who heard the name when her master spoke, maybe God is speaking to somebody here today. In John 10, verse 16, he says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Are you hearing the voice of the master calling you to come home? Say, hey, it's, it's, you've, you've had enough out there. You, you've been walking away. You've been disobeying me. You've been rebelling against me long enough. It's time to come home. Do you hear the voice of God talking to you? The voice of the master? Is it, is it recognizable to you? When, when Jesus said Mary, she recognized it as the voice of the master. Jesus is talking. Do you hear Jesus talking, the master calling? And do you know how the master calls us? It's through his word that he calls us. That's how the lights come on. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. It's through the word of God that we're called to him. It's not just through some kind of experience that we're called to him. It's through the words of Scripture that we're called to him. Hear his voice. If you have ears to hear, hear his voice. And lastly, believers, don't put away your most powerful weapon. Scripture is the most powerful weapon that you have. You know, there's people who will tell you, you know, I I don't believe in your Bible. You know, don't share those Scriptures with me. I don't believe in that. And uh, one preacher said that's just like somebody 
you know, you're about to get into a sword fight, and somebody says, I don't believe in your sword, and it's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'll, I guess I'll, I'll put that away, you know, since you don't believe in it, you know. What, what, what do you want me to bring, you know? It's like, no, they don't believe in your sword, you poke them with it. <laughs> you poke them with your sword. You don't try to explain, you know, the, the property, the scientific elements or whatever. It's like, no, let me poke you a couple times and see if you feel that. And if God is calling them, guess what? They'll feel it. <laughs> They'll feel it. Use the word of God. God calls people to himself through his word. Why were they poking around in the tomb? Because they had not yet understood the word of God. And blessed are they who believe without seeing. And that's us, right? <laughs> Praise God that we believe in the resurrection, not because we've seen an angel, seen the tomb, seen the shroud. We believe in the resurrection because we believe in the word of God. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for your word. And uh, we pray that you would use this word to speak to us. Uh, help us to understand these things. Help us to proclaim these things. Now, Father, we're grateful that we can talk about this on, on this day as we think about the, the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, what a, what a glorious day this is. Uh, just a, a wonderful time to think about what Jesus Christ has done. Uh, Father, we're just so grateful for him, for our Savior. And, uh, Father, I pray that you'd give us a greater confidence in you and your word. Uh, Father, that we would not that we would not uh, be slow to believe these things. And Father, I do pray that if there are any here today who have not yet come to Jesus Christ, now Father, that today would be the day that they would hear the voice of the Savior call them and that they would say, yes, I'm ready. Now Father, I pray that you call them today. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.